Football on the Sports Social Podcast Network is brought to you by BetVictor. With mixed market bet builders, in-play betting and a selection of welcome offers, make sure your Premier League is spent with BetVictor's premier betting app. 18 plus, begambleaware.org. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that it just got easier to be an NFL fan, even if you live far away. Like, maybe you like the Bears, but you're hibernating in Panthers territory. But with NFL Sunday Ticket, your out-of-market team is never more than a short distance away. Specifically, the distance from you to your remote control. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Hello and welcome. I'm Erin Cuthbert, footballer for Chelsea and the Scotland national team. And you're listening to the Blue Day podcast. Hello Chelsea supporters, here at the Blue Day podcast, I am thrilled to welcome our guest on the show today. He joined Chelsea in 1996 and would work with footballers us fans call legends today. He was the fitness coach under notable managers such as Gianluca Vialli and Jose Mourinho. Here is Adi Maffey, who I should mention as well, actually represented Great Britain as a sprinter at the 84 Olympics. Addy, welcome to the show. How are welcome. you, first of all? I'm fine, thank you. Good. Thank you for coming on to the show. We'll no problem. talk about your time at, at Chelsea. So we'll start way back in 1996, where obviously you'll probably agree with me on this one. Football was a lot different back then. Yeah. Euro 96 was probably still on people's minds. Yeah. And a certain Rude Hullet became the player manager at yes. the Chelsea Football Club. Yeah. You would joined the coaching staff that same summer. Yeah. How did this move come about for you? Was it always an idea for you to get into football after your days as a sprinter come about? Not really. I'd, I'd um, been involved in sprinting since the age of 11, retired at 26 and was a personal trainer to individuals in Kensington in London. And I think Rude was made manager of Chelsea Football Club and he played in Italy and they had a fitness coach there. And he obviously, as a manager now, wanted a fitness coach, but there wasn't any in the Premier League at that time. And so the there was a guy who was, appoint, uh, was appointed to find his staff, called my old running coach said, I'm looking for a fitness guy to come in and work with our players. And my old running coach knew I'd gone into personal training, said, try this guy. He might help you. And I got a phone call saying, would you like to come and do what you do with our players? And obviously I said, yes. And next minute I know I'm at Chelsea Football Club. Um, Worked with him. He got sacked. I when he got sacked, I thought that was my time. I thought that was it. Mm-hmm. And um 
then what happened was Gianluca Viali was appointed man player manager. That's right. And he was going to bring in a guy from Italy, uh, Antonio Pintas. And Antonio Pintas came in. No, sorry, he came in, and Gianluca Viali said his his English isn't very good. Just help him out. So you can understand Italian and a little bit of Italian and you're you're a good guy. So just help him out. And so I was fine, helped him out. I helped him out when Luca Viali was manager. Then um, after Luca Viali was Claudio Ranieri. That's right. His coach was, he had a fitness coach as well, um, Roberto Sassi. And Roberto Sassi came in and he said, he he just came in and uh, Claudio wanted Antonio to stay, but Antonio said, "No, you got to bring Roberto in. Keep this going because he's been pretty useful to me." And Roberto doesn't understand much English; they may not understand him properly. Take this guy on because he's pretty decent. And I then worked with Claudio Ranieri, and he's a fitness coach. Then when he got sacked, and then they brought in Jose Mourinho. For the first time, um, he had a fitness coach, uh, Rui Faria. Um, we were all told, "Oh, he's coming in." Blah 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 blah. We got to meet him. Blah, blah, blah. So we all went. New manager, and again, I thought my time was up. And um, he then, Rui, he then said, "I know. I've seen your face in the website. Who are you?" And I explained who I was, and I explained what I did, and he said, "Oh, fine." I want you part of my team. So then I stayed with Jose and Rui. And then I found one season, I found that I was, my, my role wasn't really um, involving enough, but there was the reserve team to work with. Right. So I worked with the reserve team. And then I think after, um, then I think it was 2006. So it would have just been just when Jose left the first time. I had a, um, a, a disagreement, not a disagreement, difference of opinions. And I think I'd known one of the players for quite a long time. And he had risen. He played for the first team. I knew him as a youth team player. He raised for the first team and was playing for England. And his attitude towards everything was a bit, you know, bit, and I just fell out with him. And there, were, and there was a small falling out, misunderstanding with the manager. And then at the end of the season, I think Peter Kenyon, who was the chairman, said to me, I think you better move on. And I've been there 10 years. And I thought, you know what? Thank you very much, because my whole life had changed. Thank you very much, Chelsea Football Club. And I went on to work for Millwall, West Brom, MK Dons, Watford. And I spent 17 years in football. So I was happy at my time. And I was, I thought, I, I thought, you know, it's time to move on. I guess the difference would be um, you, as an athlete, you have that single-minded, single determination uh, frame of mind. You're not used to operating within a team. And with a footballer, you have to rely on your teammates. And that was a cultural difference. And you could see it was a a mental setup as well. It was not just um, football to athletics. It was 
they would look at you as an athlete and I would look at them I'm as an individual and I have to be the best that I can be. Whereas another guy, well, he, I don't have to do as much because I can rely on him doing more. So if I'm, say, a striker, I don't have to run around so much because the midfielder is going to do that. Hmm. If I'm a defender, I don't really have to do so much because the midfielder and the strikers can do all that. Um, it, it was different the way that we thought, the way we went about things. It was different. Um, but, you know, the basic things like power and acceleration, although you have to, it has to be adapted to football. It was cult, it was the core of it was the same. Um, and some of the methods that the Italians had incorporated into it was very much what we used to do as an athlete, but just en masse. It was not just one or two people. You had 20 to 30 people you had to do in one session. So you had to think about how you were going to implement that type of work to everybody. And that's where it got, it got a bit confused. Then, as we know now, football has changed a lot with the advent of technology. It's now not so much you have to be fit to play football. You can actually be fit playing football. Um, we, can, we can put a heart rate monitor and a GPS on you and see how far you've moved in a game. Whereas before it was, we didn't do that. You had to be fit doing other things before you started playing football. Um, that's how it's changed. And so my role as a PT, a general fitness coach, sort of not faded away, became maybe a bit redundant. Not redundant, but... And then what you would have is you would have ex-footballers who maybe got an injury at a very young age, they did a sports science degree, and they could relate to the players a lot easier than I could. Um, and the players could relate to them because they knew what the demands were, whereas I was alien to their demands. Um, one of the, I mean, my background is athletics. I mean, I never, I played little football at school just because I could run. I had no ball skills whatsoever. And um, I remember I was outside with a ball and I have no touch, no control, I'm terrible. And um, obviously at a professional football club, it was embarrassing. So one more, so every morning I'll be out on the out before they come up, just doing keepy ups. And they would all see me, and I was I was determined to master the ball. And I would I would go out there and I think I was there for six months just doing keepy ups, just trying to improve my my touch a little bit because it was embarrassing where they would pass you the ball and you you were like, oh, it was terrible, it was like really alien to me. Um I could run, but Nah, ball control, not my not my cup of tea. Um it was fun. It was fun. It was it was it was a it was a um interesting part of my life, I must admit. Before we talk about your run at Chelsea, just mm. talk about the role as the fitness coach fitness coach, excuse me. Would you say then the role of the fitness coach has changed so much to the point where it's not just about keeping the players fit. It's about a whole lot more. And it would be about looking more scientific to what it would have been back in the 90s. Would you say it's completely changed? Yeah, it has changed a lot. Um, it's about... The, the, the main emphasis now is on rehab. Um, you, I remember one player, he must have pulled his hamstring like, seven or eight times in the year 
And every time he healed, he was just sent back out to play. And no one could figure out why. I just said, okay, look, just do me a favor. Just run to the, run, run, run one pitch. He ran one pitch and straight away, you could see that his glutes weren't firing. And you need to have, if you're going to run, you need to have your glutes firing as well as your hamstring. And if your glutes aren't firing, your hamstrings will take all the stress and they would break. And straight away, the glutes weren't firing. So you can see straight away, I said to him, listen, talk to one of the, the one of the physiotherapists. This guy, glutes aren't firing, needs to have a program put together for him to get his glutes firing because he's not firing. And if they're not firing, he's going to pull his hamstrings all the time. And he, and he spent most of his time with the, with the physio doing remedial work in the gym, squats and stuff like that to get those glutes firing. And then obviously then he didn't have any more hamstring problems and it's becoming a bit more scientific in, they can look at you now and how you run and how you play and they can say, well, you're not doing this. Your body's not doing that. Um, You need to be working here. You need to be doing more of this. You don't need to be doing so much of that. Whereas when I first started, as I said, it was more get fit, then you played football as well. And you get fit by running, swimming, doing anything else. And then you come and play football. When you first arrived at Harlington Training Ground, what were the players like to you? Because as you say, if a fitness coach, the role itself wasn't as common as it is now, what what were the players' responses to you? Were they sort of on board with it knowing that you know you're there to help them was or uh, did you get any pushbacks from any particular yeah, player I, I think it was it was it was a a um turning time the um, the advent of foreign players was bringing in a lot of new ideas into the game here so you get old english players were having to adopt certain um dietary physical resting attributes to be able to play the game. I remember Dennis Wise saying to me, he was, he was, <laughs> I'll never forget, forget this. He was, he'd gone to the canteen and he had a bowl of fruit and he was like, what the hell am I eating this for? And it was only because other players were doing it. That's why he was doing it. And otherwise he'd be pie mash and, and <laughs> drinking bottles of Coke and stuff like that and having a drink. Whereas, you know, he had to adopt all these things because other people were, and as he said, when I first got there, yes, the, the the main thing was you're from athletes, you're from athletics, you don't know anything about playing football. So what 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 do you have or what can you bring to this game? You don't understand what we do. And I remember one day we were running we were running around and they were whinging and complaining, and I was like, you know what, I know people who would do this for free. They wouldn't get the money that you get. They would, they'll be happy to do it. So don't stand there and go, oh, whinge, 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 because you're getting paid whether you do it or not. And that is the one thing from athletics then, not so much now, but athletics then was you only got paid per competition. Whereas in football, you get paid every week, mm-hmm. win or lose. Mm-hmm. So you go to, you go to uh, Southampton and you lose 1-0. There is no financial uh, penalty. There is no... The only penalty is that the team doesn't do so well. You lose three points. 
but the players they don't have any penalty so you you you're as an individual you're thinking well hold on a second if i'd gone to that game and i'd lost i'd have a penalty i would i would not get so much money the next time i would i would come i came second i came third it was a penalty to me whereas if you're a football player your team lost you did lost three points but you still get picked for the next game if you played well you still the team would still go on and so you can see how your your mind and their mind are completely different they work in different ways and that in that incapacity or the um the that lack of um how do I what's the word they just didn't fit together and it was always that problem and so you 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 had that problem they had they were sort of well you know you're from athletics you don't really know how we are and what we do but we'll listen to you because the gaffer says that's what we've got to do and it was not really a kickback I mean they, they were perfectly good they were I, they were perfectly fine I never had any problems if I told them to do this or I told them to do that it was just the occasional you know oh, do we have to do we have to because I just didn't want to and you quickly knew which ones were the ones that whinged and the ones that didn't you know so you you just got on with it you just got on with it and you just you just gave them what they 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 wanted and and sometimes you would see a result when for instance you see a counter-attack and it's a um, you'd have five players running the length of the pitch and then you realize that your job of doing is okay because you can see they all had the attitude to go up the other end of the pitch and score the goal whereas if you had a team that wasn't that fit they wouldn't not be thinking I can do that and that's the only time when you maybe see a player who run 40 50 60 yards most of the time it's all 10 20 30s and 30 at the max because it's all short distances would you um, say then that the perception that the players had or have on the, the fitness coach obviously changed when results started picking up in we're talking about Chelsea so Chelsea's results started to go a little bit better and they did reach the cup final that same season that you joined. Would you say that the perception of the that squad that you was working with changed over the course of the season or was it a bit longer than that? I would say I wouldn't say it was a, I wouldn't say it was the sole reason. I would say it was one of many reasons. Right. I think that perception changed, but it, there were lots of reasons why it changed. Yes, the introduction of fitness coaches into the game helped the success of the team helped the success, the advent of foreign players into the Premier League helped them bringing in it, it was really funny the Italian players love roast dinner and yet you'll look at the English players look at the Italian diet and they were like oh yeah but the Italian players were like well we want some of what you eat and to the English players oh roast dinner yeah okay we eat that all the time we don't want it but let's go and eat a uh, pizza or let's go and have uh, balsamic vinegar or let's go and have something you know it was always that that integration of foreign um foreign methodology methodology with the english mentality all gelled together and before you know it obviously with everything else and the players and the improvement on the players that's what brought chelsea that's brought chelsea football club forward and upwards and you know if you look at it it's like fa cup Jesper Gronke scores a goal, Champions League, Champions League win, Champions League win again. You know, it's 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 slowly, and then um, Roman Abramovich coming into the club, blind the club of Ken Bates. 
you know, all those things have come. And now you see Chapsworth Football Club has slowly grown up and it's now the club that it is at the top end of the at the top end of the um, Premier League. What was it like working with Rude Hullet? Um, hmm. How do I say? What was it like working with Rude Hullet? Hmm. Okay, it was all right. He could. He, I mean, if you see what's happened to him, I mean, he's. Um, if you see what's happened to him, what happened to him at Newcastle, what happened to him. Um, I'm still friends with him on Facebook now, and he has that kind of laid-back kind of not superior, but kind of confident attitude to everything, and um, which has made him the player that he was because he was always very, you know, ha ha ha, watch me, I'm really good, you know, ha ha, and I think you could see where his where he would trip up right. um what would trip him up and i think you can see what happened at newcastle was was his like well i'm the gaffer here i do what i want I, i'm the boss i do what i want and they were like no alan Shearer's is the boss <laughs> alan Shearer runs the show here you can't do that and and he paid the price mm. um you know with, when the team started losing, he paid the price. Um, the thing was, he's, then he, he was appointed player manager here. And a player manager is a very difficult role to, to do. Because you're, when you're playing, you can't see what you can see on the side of the pitch. But it's very difficult for you on the side of the pitch to go and train and do everything to play. And he was caught in that. He wanted to stand by the side of the pitch and watch them. And it's very difficult to do those two things together. He should have been either a manager or a player, one of the two. And there was a time when he was trying to do both. And, you know, it, it proved very difficult. But Would you, you know. say then from a coach's perspective, that's what hindered him? Was the fact that he was he was both? He wasn't one or the other? Yes. Right. I think that did hinder him. But I think also what hindered him was his, his the way he was as a person. Right. You know, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's how he was. And I think that kind of sort of some people it will rub them up the wrong way. And if you rub up the wrong person the wrong way in football, football is a very subjective game. It's it's a game. Even when you get picked, it's not necessarily what you do. It's whether someone likes what you do. And if that person likes what you do, then you're okay. But if they don't like what you do, you're dead. (laughs) And you know, and I know lots of players who've done, who have the capability to do everything right, but their personality, maybe they don't get on with the right person. Two or three people don't like him. See you later. And that's, that's how football is. And, you know, you have to either respect it or not respect it. Um, But, you know that that that's how, that's how you have to accept it. That's how it is. And you know, you, you talk to anybody now, and you'll say, oh, do you, you know, do you know talented guys? Yeah, God knows, I know talented guys. That and what are they doing now? Oh, they're they're you know, they're just out of the game because basically they got the talent, but the persons, the people that made those decisions, be it managers, scouts, whatever, they go, you know, I don't like that about him, and then. That's a cross. 
And then you've got a cross, 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 tick, 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 and there's too many crosses. Okay, we'll go and find somebody else. You can tick a few more, few more categories along the way. You know, it's mad. The FA Cup final 97, Chelsea against Middlesbrough. Uh-huh. What are your memories of that day? Um, I've never been to Wembley Stadium before. It was the old Wembley. That's right. I remember I walked all the way around to the dugout, sat in the dugout, and Mark Hughes had gone, I've forgotten my socks. And I'd run all the way back to the change room, which was all the way down the tunnel, got Mark Hughes' socks, run all the way back, and as I was coming out the tunnel, Roberto scored that goal. Oh, oh no. And everyone was going mad. And I'd, I was, like, running back to the dugout. Everyone was going mad. I'm like, what? What's happened? Oh, damn, we scored. Oh, my God. we still got 80, 80 odd minute, 90, 90, 87 minutes to go. And, um, yeah, then that, that, that's, that was my one memory of the, the day. And then I remember coming out the tunnel. I did the first warm. I did the warm up. Coming out the tunnel, leading the team out the tunnel. Yeah, that was one hell of a first year in uh, introduction to athlete, uh, to football. That's one hell of an introduction to football. I couldn't believe it. It was absolutely brilliant that day. That year. That that year was absolutely ninety six. Wow, what a year that was. Because then it would be from ninety seven, ninety seven to ninety eight. Then, as you said. Uh, beforehand, Rude Hood it left and Viali came in. Yeah. How much of a change was it for you to deal with with Rude Hood it going to then Viali coming in? Did your role as the fitness coach change quite significantly, or was you still given the same remit as before? Well, I was. To be fair, as I said at the beginning, yeah, Antonio Pintas came in and um, from Italy and brought a whole new, not new. I knew what was being done. But he bought a a um, how to do it for thirty players. The organisation that you'd have to do it for thirty players. The the exercises were the same. Whereas I was just an individual thinking about one or two people. Hmm. He was not football clubs. You have to be thinking about how thirty players can do this. And so straight away we had to we had to create a gym. The gym was full of six. Smith machines and he was doing squats with power readings and it, it was it was multiplying everything out and obviously when you have to multiply and collect results from everybody it was it was more than one person could do and I was his assistant if you know what I mean um but the exercises were fundamentally the same some of the stuff was like whoa you're doing that yeah we used to do that but you're doing that um, with footballers, mm, okay, I can understand where it would fit in, but that's something they'd never done before. And I think he sort of opened me up to the pos- the how you could train as a football player. Um, obviously, you know, then you have to think about well, if you're going to train like that, you can't train like that in season because you're playing. So you've got from from July, May, July, August till May, you can't do it. So the only time you could do it is maybe pre-season. You could do it. And then they're doing a load of other work as well. So really, you know, the time is, is quite short and you, you have to think about how it would fit in amongst other things. 
Um, th that that was the 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 one thing he brought um, that sort of opened my eyes to a whole bunch of stuff and how it's worked off. And if you know, he's he went on to work at Real Madrid. I don't know where he is now. And he's still in football, I'm sure. I think he's still at Real Madrid. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's still in football, is. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm, he's a well-respected individual, you know, and he's been in the game for a long time. And I was very happy to work with him and see what worked and what worked. Obviously, now with the benefit of hindsight, you can say, okay, now we can um, change those methods. Maybe you realise that was a bit too much, maybe not too, you know, it's a fine balance between realising how much work you've got to do and how much is too much and you don't want to do too much. And it, it, it was, it's, it's, he, it was a real eye-opener, a real eye-opener. When it came to injured players, would there be a conversation between you and the manager at that time to go, right, how can we get this player meant, not just mentally ready, but physically ready? Would there be a, a plan in place for you to then devise about putting this particular player back on a fitness regime? Was there anything like that in, in, the, in the mix? Um, not so much in the early days. I think now there is. Right. I think now a returning player. I mean, I even think. Well, if I think in my experience, the, in the later days with Mourinho, the the a returning player basically would go from first team straight to physio. Physio would then work with the rehab guy, and the player would move from physio. I can't. You can't do anything to rehab guy. Okay, you need to be able to do twisting and turning, so on and so forth. And then he would move on to the fitness coach. And the fitness coach will say, will assess him and look at him and say, oh, you can do this, you can do that. And then he would have a, a, a discussion with the manager and say, okay, now can we, that player, I think he's ready to be integrated back into the group. Hmm. Um, that's how it would be. You get some managers that don't want to speak to a player when he's in the, with the physio. Hmm. You know. They don't want to because you, you're useless to me. You don't. You're not. You're not going to be. You're not affecting what I do. You're not affecting the club's results. Just get out of here as quick as you can. Get go through. Come back as quick as you can. As strong as you can. And that is that is the process. The player has to go from being injured all the way back into the first team. And and say sometimes it's quite quick. The only problem is if you do it really quick, it's going to happen again. Um. If it's not being followed, it can he can break down once he's in the first team, go straight back into the physio's bench, and then you know it's probably the person who has the final say is obviously the fitness coach and the manager at that one end. You know, because um, I'm, I'm sure the physio will say you're not going to leave here until I, I know you're you haven't got that problem anymore. If he, the fitness coach and the rehab guy haven't done their work before the fit before the fitness coach talks to the manager and integrates him back into the team, then someone there is not doing their job properly. So, you know, one thing, one thing I did want to sort of discuss was during your time there, who would you say was the fittest footballer that you worked with that you had not many problems with in terms of getting their fitness rates up high? And who was the player that you felt no matter how much work you would be able to do with him whether it would be from uh, an injury or through lack of general fitness, that his 
overall fitness would not be able to improve. So who would you say was the fittest and who less so? Um, the fittest guy, Dennis Wise. Okay. Um, unbelievable. He could have been a, a club athlete, middle distance runner, no problem at all. He was just uh, an engine. And he would, he, he, when it came to running, he'd just leave everybody standing. And, and then, then obviously, you know, in the box when he was midfield, because he was a midfielder. So running up and down, that's it. That was his forte. That was what he was good at. And you could see that that was what he was made for. Um, player that you couldn't get anything out of. Ooh, I th- hmm. I don't think, well, I, th- I don't think there was a player that you couldn't get something out of. I think that there are other factors that cause the mental state of those players. So an example would be Winston Bogard, for instance. But I think he 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 cottoned on what was going on. He cottoned on that it was a, there were powers that be were keeping him in that situation. And he wanted to exploit that situation. And so he had it in the mentality. He was of that mentality to get what he could out of the day, out of the deal. Right. Um, and he was his his mental state was just like, you know, not about playing football. It was just, you know, pay me my money and I'm gone. Yeah. And so he was the one who was, I would say that, that, that they they the, the powers that be as well, because he was out of the way, they would say, oh, just give him some money. Just keep him out of my way. And it was like. It was like palm off, off you go. You go and you go and do that. And it, it it was, you know, it was a it was a bad time, and you knew you knew it was a, not a bad. You know, you weren't. You knew you weren't the work you were giving him. When you weren't giving him anything for a reason, unless you wanted to give it to him personally, just go on to do something else in another club, because you knew that in Chelsea that he was dead, um, and he was just seeing out his contract and so on and so forth. So you knew it was a dead situation. So you were just giving it to him as a player individually. But then as an individual, he didn't even want to know. You know, you, you, you knew that you were making him run, but you weren't making him run for anybody but himself. And so he didn't want to do it. So you, you sort of had this conundrum. And as I say, it was more of, a, of another issue rather than the physical unplaying football issue. Um. And so that was it. But no, I don't think there was a player that you couldn't get fit. I think most of them were pretty up for it. Um, obviously, the, they they all have their own personal improvement plan in their head. So, you know, they all want to play. They they know there's competition to play in their places. And so they have to stay at the top of the game because if they're not at the top of the game, someone else will take their place. So, you know, but I think you as a player, money regardless you had that little improvement plan in your head and you're always looking to see how you can improve. And if you can improve running or getting up and down, being fit, you're going to do it. It was in around 2000, Ranieri took over Mm. at Chelsea from Viali. What was your relationship like with Claudio? Um, Mr. Diddley Dong. Um, dilly dee, dilly dong. Oh, I thought I thought it was brilliant. Um, he was. How do I say it? 
he was refreshing, what refreshing, um, but a very similar mentality to what was there before with Viali, um, but a bit more grown up, a bit more adult, a bit more experienced. Whereas with Viali was as a player, he was a player before, and I think it was his first job in management. Whereas Ranieri was a bit more professional and a bit more experienced about how to run a football club and how to manage players and how to get the best out of everybody. Um, and then went on to great things at Leicester and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I think he was another step in the evolution of Chelsea Football Club, if you know what I mean. Um yeah, he was he was very good, very good for the team. I I I I um enjoyed the time there. I mean, you know, he's he, he recruited players like Ardiger Johnson and Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank and Claude Makaleli, and you know, he he changed the way the team played, and then they started producing results and moved on. So you know. I was quite happy to be part of it then. It was July 2003, and it's quite scary that we're approaching the 20-year anniversary of this, mm. but the landscape of Chelsea, and in fact, probably world football changed completely when Roman bought the club. Mm. Do you remember how you found out about the news? Yeah, well, we found out about it. Um, this huge helicopter landed in the middle of, middle of uh, Harlington. <laughs> and he well, came he out. Was still we were still training. Oh, we wow. were training, and the helicopter landed in the middle of the training pitch. And he came out, talked to some of the players, got back in the helicopter, and flew off again. And so then you knew the whole the whole game had changed. And then suddenly, it was like money was being spent improving Harlington, and then the next minute, we're off to Cobham. And at the same time, he was improving Cobham. And the next minute, off to Cobham. And, you know, he he injected so much cash into that, that training facility, that club, that, you know, I, I, as I say, brought it up another part of the step up, you know. And it, it was amazing to be part of the beginning of it. And it's um, to see that where it came from and what it is, what it is now is just, like, staggering. For those, for those that only remember Cobham, like for the new sort of Chelsea fans that only know Cobham, they don't know Harlington. Mm. Describe to the listeners what Harlington was like, because oh. people that I know have got their own stories of Harlington. Yeah. Um, what's, what's your best stories of Harlington oh, training Chelsea? Um, windy, right near the M4, right near the airport, cold. Um, one big field that used to run around. Um, uh, memories of <sighs> there's so many. Um, I knew one of the players had a relationship with with Audi, his his local garage next to him, and he came in and he came in in a car, and you had the opportunity to drive cars that you wouldn't have the opportunity to drive. And I was always one like, oh, what was that a Ferrari? Or can I, do you mind if I have a go? And, yeah. And he brought in an RS6 Audi, the estate version, the monster estate version. 
and they just let him have it for the, I don't know, just let him borrow it for a weekend or something like that. And he brought it into training. And I said, oh, I'll, can I just go for a spin? I just want to drive up the road and drive back, which is what I used to do with you. I just drive up the road, turn around and drive back. And then, and I've never known a car every year. First gear, second gear, third gear. It was just unbelievable. Unbelievable. And then, you know, Harlington, yeah, it was, it was small. It was an old school training ground. It was an old university training ground. They had little changing rooms. Um, and showers you know it wasn't and then it was it was it was it was a training ground it wasn't anything special but then obviously with roman's money then the whole game changed really and it all went five star and it now it's ridiculous because it but, moved to cobham yeah it moved to cobham and all, all the pitches and, then, and yeah. then the buildings were being built now we got custom made player accommodation yeah. if they want to stay there overnight they can stay overnight you've got security guards i mean you go to cold now and it's just like you can't even get through the door no there's no, no in those days you just get appointment only is cobham yeah appointment yeah. only is cobham i yeah. mean you know we used to have two two ladies that used to do the cooking they used to get a pound a player and they used to go to they used to go to um the local supermarket and buy some chicken chicken goujons in breadcrumbs, and used to bring it back and cook them up. Now you got a five star bleeding chef Boyardee yeah. doing the whole cooking, and yeah. they all eat five star nowadays. You know, and it's almost you know it's just it's crazy how it's changed from from then to now. It's just mad, yeah, absolutely mad. Um, with, that, with with Roman's money and you know the the fact that he was looking to make an impact. Did you mm. find it a challenge setting up sessions for players when that particular summer itself, Chelsea seemingly was buying a player every week? So you didn't know who was turning up or who would be leaving. Was it a challenge for you dealing with that particular outcome? No, I think, you 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 know, with the money you were buying a better player, a player who wouldn't be who would be able to do things that other players could not do um but at the end of the day he still has to run he still has to be able to run he still has to be able to uh, get up and down the pitch move from a to b uh, and that doesn't change and most of the sessions are to help you do that um and do that a little bit better so you didn't really have to change what you're doing you obviously you had to be professional and you had to you couldn't mess about you couldn't be disorganized. Yeah, you couldn't um, show you were disorganized. You had to be organized. Obviously, then they would look at you and reflect on you if you were disorganized. So you had to be make sure that you were cap- catering for the ma- the mass, the number that you had, and you were organized. If you were doing a something, if you had an idea in your head, don't just think about doing it for one or two people. Think about doing it for 30, 40 people, if you can do that and make it look like you've accommodated everybody, it was almost easy for you. Um, that was that was the skill and that was the artery that Pintus brought and now and Sassy uh, continued about how to make 30 players 
perform. Um, only if you're doing a one-to-one with someone that like you're taking a player and you're working with him and you've just got him on his own, it's easy because you're just dealing with one person. But when you're dealing with the squad, you might have 20 players. And if you just, if you mess up not the 18th or the 19th player, your 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 reputation is looked upon by everybody else there as not great because you've messed up. So you know it's it was it was a challenge. As I said, I was only used to dealing with one to one, dealing with one to one people. These guys brought that expanded world to me and how they now deal with how you do a. a, a squat and maybe dragging a, a tire or dragging some weights with 30 players, you know, doing some resisted running with 30 players rather than doing resisted running with one player. That's completely different. You've got to think about it in that broader world. And um, it's, it's, it was, it was in, very interesting, very interesting to see how it was done. As I said, I don't know whether they're still doing it. I don't think so. I think they're now just sort of, the fitness coach is now about collecting information. Um, if you're a data analyst now, it's a lot more more apt for you. And a, a fitness coach is really just doing the warm-ups and getting players ready, but they're not really doing anything on mass like that anymore. Now you can see some clubs, they'll just go in and the preseason's done with the ball and they just have the ball all the time. And the, and and. He'll be the fitness coach. Will say, right, okay, this is what we're looking for today. Uh, we want to do what with resistance. How can we work the resistance within a football session? And so you can see how they'll marry up with what the managers wanting to do it within the football session with the ball. And that is that was the difference. Whereas before, you might say, okay, well, we go to the gym and we do lots of this and we do lots of squats and have lots of equipment stuck out in the field and maybe 10, 10 rows of six doing squats and stuff like that and then doing runs. Whereas now, but now it's like you don't need any of that. They can do that with the ball. You maybe get them to jump and then run with the ball and it's completely different. Now it's completely different at all. So, you know, now I'm just result- resorting to working one-on-one with players if I can get, if you can get the, the gym, especially with this year and the World Cup being in the middle of the year. It's, well, Jose um, turned up at Chelsea in t- around 2004. Yeah. He brought his own coaching staff in. Yeah. You know, as you say, Rui Faria, yeah. Andre villesh Barash would yeah. even sort of yeah. join in as yeah. the, op- the opposition scout. Yeah. When you would be there, for, say, like pre-season, and then you would see his sessions compared to the others that you've had to deal mm. with over the last mm. sort of mm. five, six years, what was the main differences between those particular sessions that you saw or the same or the different training methods that you saw? Um, Jose was always with the ball. Everything was with the ball. Um. All the managers before pre-season, they would do from Viali onwards would do thousand meter runs. Spend four minutes running round and round and round. You'd have to set up a thousand meters or five hundred meter track, and they would run round it twice, and they would do up to six one thousands. And so all the players knew that when they came in for pre-season, they were going to have to run. But with Jose, no running. It was just ball all the time. 
And I remember his first preseason, I sort of went, well, you know, he has now won the Champions League with Porto. So I'm like, he must know what he's doing. Okay, just, you know, that's it. And all the players were like, hey, you know, what's going on? No running with the ball? Are you mad? And and you you, you quite quickly you realise that, yes, you just, you train with the ball and that was enough. You didn't need to do anything else extra. Because they must have, the they must have saw it very differently then. Because again, if they've been used to runs, sprints, mm, mm, for days on end, weeks mm, on end, mm, to then be given a ball at their feet and go right, here you go, here you go, first day, here you go. Must, that must have been a huge psychological boost for them. Oh, absolutely, something different, and absolutely. then they're obviously getting engaged with it. Did absolutely. that make your job a little bit easier as well? Because then when it came to um, doing sessions. Someone like from the old school, it was the first nail in the coffin. Right. It was the first nail in the coffin, and you knew that you had to adapt and change in the right. in the years coming on. Um, but from the old school way of thinking, nah, that's gone. And then you could see Brendan Rogers adapted his style, uh, and you could see Pep Guardiola adapted his style, and you can see how coaches now have adapted that style going on. But the old school 6,000 metre runs before pre-season was, it died its death. And now the players realised when they came in, they didn't need to do that rubbish anymore. Mm. They didn't like it. And now they don't need to do it anymore. Mm. You know, he was making them running and out of of cones and doing all that stuff from day one. And they were like, yeah, you don't, we don't need you. We don't need you to run round and round in circles. We We got quite happy. Here we go. It's a ball. And so you can see, yes, it was great. It was a great progression. But as I said, it was a first nail in that coffin. And if you didn't adapt and change, you would be where I am now. (laughs) You was there, though, in 2005 when Chelsea ended up winning the league. Do you you remember that particular time well? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hold on. Oh, Yes, I was there. Um, great time had by all. It was, um, oh, it was just, I can't, I can't put words to it. It's absolutely, um, it was absolutely the best time. It's better if I just show my picture. Uh, right. Here we go. This is my picture, as you can see right there. Can you see that? I can see that, yes. Um, two bus tours, Premiership yeah. Trophy. Um, when we won the league, I've got pictures of... Um, yeah, where's the other one? There's the other one. Just walking there with my daughter, walking on the pitch and the season wow. game. So, you know, it, it was brilliant time. It was... That's fantastic. Uh, it was, it was, I can't, as I say, you can't put into words. It was the the top of the top. Um, you don't get a chance to experience that. A mm, lot of people now in the premiership, they won't have the chance to experience that. Um, it's a select few. And I was very glad that I was one of those. Um, doing that bus tour around Fulham, Jesus Christ, I've never seen so many people in my life. <laughs> on the streets, it's just unbelievable. I got loads of pictures. 
and I'm just like, we're just going round, and the number of Chelsea fans that were out on the street down by on the King's Road. Oh my mm. god, I, unbelievable, unbelievable! And they've done it twice, but it, just the first time was just like was absolute madness. Would and... you say that would be the pinnacle of your time at Chelsea because of the years that you spent before, Ooh. like the money came in? Pinnacle of the career, you know. I would say for me, the most the pinnacle of your time for at me Chelsea was the first season. one. That first year, that first year, the FA Cup at the end of the okay. season, that was the one. Okay, she won on one, went, went on to win the Premiership, and you got into the Champions League, and they won the Champions League afterwards. But for me personally, mm. running running out onto that pitch with the players behind me for the warm up before the game, at old Wembley. Wembley for me, old I, Wembley was old Wembley. Yes. Proper um, Wembley, as I old like Wembley, to say. Yeah. proper yeah. Wembley. That was the Wembley I remembered. Have they, you know, it was that was that Wembley hmm. taking them out there, warming them up. Roberto scores in forty three seconds. Game goes on, win the FA Cup. That was it for me, right? Um, and what else happened? The success that one happened. Everything else was, hmm. is, I mean, you know, winning the Premiership and everything else. I mean, you know, for even getting into the Champions League for the first time. You know, I remember Jesper Gronke scored the goal on the on the on the on the in the Matthew Harding end That's right. the corner, and we're in the Champions League. Um, next year we're in the Champions League. You know, that, that was all part of the progression. It was just well, mad. It's absolute madness. So that that whirlwind of a ride. And ten years after, as you say, at the start of the show, ten years after joining the club, you would then leave Chelsea. Mm. You mentioned briefly about one of the reasons why you left. What was sort of the, the main sort of factors behind this decision? Was it more of a mutual decision or was it based on yourself or the club decided that it was best to m- move on? Um, I don't really know. I just, I don't really know from the club point of view. Um, I'm surmising this is what happened. I don't really know. All I know is that at the end of this season, I was calling to Peter Kenyon's office, who was the chairman at the time, and he said, I think it's best if you move on. And I was like, after what happened in that last season, I was like, you know what, thank you. Because I'd been here for 10 years and I'd obviously rocked the boat and maybe now is the best time for me to go. Um, I'm... I I don't know. I just think it was, it, it, I'd, I'd, I've been there for 10 years and I think, you know, also the thing is, I mean, as I say, from at, in hindsight now, I can look at, look at it and say, you know, it was the best thing ever because I went on to do other clubs. I went on to MK Dons, Watford, Millwall. You know, I went on to other clubs. And you clubs worked with well. Zola at Watford. You worked with D. Yeah, Zola I went on to, Dons, so I went to MK Dons, West you... Brom, you know, the yeah. whole... And that was, I mean, if you think I was 17 years in football, 10 years at Chelsea. So I had seven years of moving around different clubs, experiencing what it was like in League One, experience like what it was like in the championship. You know, you saw so much more to football in the UK than just being at Chelsea all this time and just only working for Chelsea Football Club and seeing the progression there. Um, the one thing that struck me the most is there's a big gulf between the players who play in the Premiership and the players who play in the Championship or 
or League One is a very big gulf. Certain players can do certain things, whereas in the Championship, some players can't do, and you, but they still do more than most normal people. But if you're used to what they do, and then you see these guys do it, they can't do that. And so then you realise why. And so you, I remember um, I used to have an exercise and you'd set up cones on the floor and they'd have to run in certain directions. But the first thing they had to do, they used to have to chip a ball 40 yards to another player and he would do the same thing from the other side. And I thought, oh, great, we'll do that one. So I did that one, set it all up, got the players to chip a ball 40 yards. Well, if you've seen the balls, they were just like, chipped everywhere <laughs> they couldn't kick a ball you know when you see a guy do a great crossfield pass and it lands right at the guy's feet and then he takes it on and he does something else with well, the number of guys that would just kick a ball and it would just go straight out of the field or off in that direction and they just couldn't chip it 40 yards uh, it, it, there were some that did but there was a lot that didn't and so you knew straight away that these guys couldn't do those exercises or they could do those exercises but it would be a complete waste because that one skill they couldn't do so you straight away okay look you guys need to run <laughs> off you go and run because running is easy you just need to run don't worry about the ball just do the ball when your football session but just run and so you could see it was all stripped back and it was not so all that technical side of it you had to just leave behind and there are certain sessions that you could say that well, these guys they can't do that let's just do this um so, you know, it did help you in good stead. But as I said, it, it was you, 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 because you were working with top-end players, you could only work with top-end teams. Mm. And that was the problem. That was the problem. Do you still keep in touch with some of your old colleagues at Chelsea? Not just players, but obviously other employees like, you know, managers or assistant coaches? Still... No, not really. But funny enough, I've been invited to um uh there's a function tonight. Uh the best Black All Eleven, I think it's Paul Canaville. Yeah. He's got a foundation. That's right, yeah. And yeah. they've invited me to this found the foundation meeting tonight. Okay. Um and they you know, the black best the best and be fair about it, from a black point of view. You have a all-time black all ele- uh, first eleven mm. that you can name in every position. Mm. You know, from Bernard Lambald right back. You got Marcel. You've got Antonio Rudiger. You've got Celestine Babiero on the left. You've got Ma- um, Claude McAlelly in the middle. McAlelly in the middle. You've yeah, got yeah. Um, Drogba up top. Drogba up top. You've yeah. got Sean Wright Phillips. You've got uh, Michael Essien. You've got yeah. uh, Mikel. You've got you, you could name a whole yeah. first eleven. Um, and so I've been invited to that. So I'm going to that tonight. Um, hopefully see some old faces. We yeah, never know. Good if you did, yeah. Um, but you know, it's just it, you. As I said, you 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 were part of Chelsea in a, a very formulative stage, and it's great to see how the clubs evolved. And now we're just fight, fighting at the top with other clubs that have evolved. Um, to stay at the top, and you know, I think it's great. I mean, you you just you know, 
we've had our time. It, it, I think it all goes in phases anyway. You have your phases and then you have to rebuild and come back, you know, and at the moment it's maybe Man City's phase and, you know, it's then it's like, oh, Liverpool's phase and then they go down and then it's going to be uh, even Arsenal going, uh, uh, trying to get back up there again from pr- being up there. Now they've been down in the doldrums and now they're trying to get back up there again. You know, it, it, that's it. That, that constantly changing world is the, what, why we love the premiership and why we love the, the, the football in the country. That's, that's, that's all, you know, it's all part of it. It's really good. Finally, Eddie, how do you look back on your time at Chelsea? Um, how do I look back? Hmm. I view life as a, a book with loads of chapters in it. And it was one of a chapter, one chapter in that book. And I think that it was one of the best chapters in the book, to be fair. Um, from the very first few, first paragraph, or not the first, first page. Wow. And then obviously reading on, reading on, seeing how it developed and then going back down and then going back up to the premiership title and so on and so forth. Great chapter. And then obviously leaving it and going into other clubs. But the first 10 years, I think it's a real eye-opener. Um, um, I find myself a bit unique. Um, I think you'll find a few guys who are still are still working as a fitness coach in the industry. A lot of um, guys have moved on and you realise that it's not the... If you're looking for security, football isn't the place for you. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's great. Um, you also know the, the uh, although the players are earning mega money, think about the kit man, think about the physio, think about all the, the backroom staff that are devoted t- to the team and making the team play. And if you realise, one thing I used to realise at the time was like, if the team was playing on Boxing Day and it was, I mean, although the FA do try, but say, for instance, um, the team's playing in Nottingham on Boxing Day, which I think Chelsea are playing this year in Nottingham or the other way around. That's right, yeah. I think it's Nottingham on Boxing Day. So you realise that the team, the kit man, everybody else, the backroom staff will all be at Cobham on Christmas Day. And although the players are earning so much money that it's not a problem, the kit man isn't, the physio isn't. And he's having to give up Christmas Day because he would normally spend it with his family and he's having to go into work because his team are playing on Boxing Day. So, you know, that, that, that's the unique thing you don't understand. when what you, you do understand if you're me on this side, but when you're on this side yourself, you might not know that the kit man is giving up all that time to earn a regular wage. Whereas you go into work on Christmas Day, you're getting double time, you know, because you're giving up that day. Whereas the kit man is not getting, he's not, unless the players are nice enough. I remember one player, one player um, pre Christmas, he would go around the training ground with a whole or with a wad full of cash. And he'd be just giving the members of staff, happy Christmas, going, happy Christmas, happy Christmas, happy Christmas. And he'd just be going around like that. You got nothing from the club. 
just this one player. No, and, and you get other players that wouldn't do anything. Or they say happy Christmas to some people. Or you get some players that give the boot boys a bonus. If if a young player was cleaning his boots, you give a boot boy a bonus. But you get backroom staff, they wouldn't have any kind of recompense for that time of year. Um, unless the players were good enough to go around and say, here you go, happy Christmas, happy Christmas, happy Christmas. Because to them, money, they, they got so much, they don't really... It's not really some of them it doesn't really matter to you know and and but yeah and, and it, that's how it was that's how it was um and you respect you respected them because I, I still now I just see players do things with a ball I'm like how the hell did you do that I mean watching Franco Zola score that on the backhill goal you remember the goal in their post still the one of the greatest goals Norwich, I've ever seen yes. from the corner from Lasso's corner straight in he's jumped look I'm running in. Jumped up in the air and he's hit it. Croy, not Croyfed it, kicked it between his legs, behind his legs, and it's gone in the goal. And you're just like, hold on a second. How did you do that? How did you calculate where where the ball was going to be, when you did that, how much force to put? At, yeah. And then you realize it's innate. It's not something that you get, you skill. It's just in you. It was a gorgeous goal. Yes. Absolutely it's gorgeous. In you. Um, and then the best moment for me was that mad goal at, at the Watford. Do you remember that one? The championship semi-final oh, against Leicester. Watford, Leicester, yes. Yes. Leicester went up one end. One end. And then had a penalty. And then Cavity. they went down the end. And then was Ruth, you there and for Dini. that? Wow. Oh, yeah. I was ill. Because I, I worked... Um, I was at West Brom. I was at West Brom with Roberto Di Matteo because he said when he was a player at Chelsea... He said to me, if I'm ever a manager, you'll be my fitness coach. And I went, yeah, no problem. And then he got the MK Dons job. I went there. And he got the West Brom job, went there. And then when he got sacked to West Brom, I fell ill. I didn't work for three years. Um, just a viral mental problem. So I lost all my coordination and balance and everything else. And then I went to Watford after that. And that was my first job back in football because Franco wanted a fitness coach because his yes. fitness coach went to Brighton. And so Franco called Roberto and Roberto said, call him up. So I went to Watford and I was at Watford for that one one season. And that yeah, semi-final. That was a playoff was, semi-final, wasn't it? Playoff semi-final. Yeah, it. Yeah, that yeah, was yeah. the most amazing day in football ever. Wow. Ever, ever, ever. I remember I just sat on the chair and everyone just jumped up and ran off. And I just sat in the chair thinking, I can't believe that's just happened. That's just mad. And I remember, and when you see it on TV, you see everyone jumping around and I'm yeah. sitting in the chair in the background because I would have been up there running. But I was so scared of running out there and falling flat on my face. I just, because one of the, one of my problems was I had no control, physical control. And so if I thought, oh, I go and do that. I was so scared that I'd trip over and I wouldn't, I'd fall over or right. I wouldn't be able to do it. So I just didn't do anything. I just sat there and I had to make sure every movement was controlled. Whereas uncontrollable with adrenaline, ah, uh, I wasn't going to get involved. So I just sat there in my chair and they all went mad. And Franco <laughs> jumping around with the goalkeeper and I just sat in my chair and just watched it. It's just unbelievable. Brilliant. But that, that, that's, that was another game that I was very honored to be at. And, uh, you know, and I think, as I said, that 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 following season, because obviously they went to the championship final, they lost to Crystal Palace, That's and right. they didn't go up. 
and Palace went up and so the the posies decided to chop and change and keep you know they are chop yeah, and change. Zola left quite yeah, Zola left the, yeah, the following yeah, yeah. year, and, and they chop and change and everything else. And he walked they out. They still do that. They still do it. <laughs> and you know, so I went. I was one of the casualties at the end of the season, and I thought, you know what, seventeen years, whatever will be, will be. If it happens to me, it happens to me. But otherwise, I'm just going to just. So I've moved away from it. I'm not really the type of person to tout it, if you know what I mean. I, right. I like to. You, if you know who I am, you come to me and you say, "Oh, look, I've, I've I found you. Would you do this?" I'm more than happy to do it, yeah, but yeah. I'm not one to go stuffing in people's faces. Oh, you've no, done, done this, I've done, I've done this, and that. That's how I am. Well, Addy, I've thoroughly enjoyed listening to your stories today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank okay. you very much for coming on to the show again, and mm-hmm. you know, all the best. Thank you very much indeed. All the best to you as well. And um, I'll mention you tonight, I'm sure. Podcast Network.